On the Empire Podcast this week, we invite Steve Carell to our pants party to celebrate the release of Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, while Fury director David Ayer trains his guns on the pod booth because he's driving a tank, you see. Plus the usual movie news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that has no strings on it. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast this week. I'm joined by three colleagues of, of well, varying degrees of lethal cunning, to be honest. Uh, first up is our resident film fact fiend, a man who's forgotten more about forgetting more about film than you'll ever remember about forgetting about film is Ali Plum. Did you know that Will Smith, his first name is actually Willard? No way. Yep. Holy cow. Did you know that Tom Cruise's real name is Thomas Cruise Maypother IV? Yes. Yes, you did. Good, I was just checking. Just double checking. And next up is a man who I only just discovered. I've worked with him for years, but I only just discovered. Not only is he an art house guru, but he's a World War II fanatic well, of course he is. It was shot in black and white, and there are subtitles everywhere. It's Phil Dissemblian. Oh, hello. <clears throat> Why do you sound surprised? Or, or, or Triumph of the Phil. I thought you were talking about James there for a minute. When you use the word fanatic in the World War II together, it immediately makes people think about the SS. <laughs> I want to distance myself from that. But I'm is not true? a fanatic you, of the Second no, World War. you're a PDS. I'm, a, I'm in the BDS. I, I feel on very shaky ground here making SS jokes this time of the day, so we're going to step away from that. But I, yeah, I know I studied history, so I have a sort of an interest, I suppose, should we say. What particular area? What, the war? Uh-huh. All the explosions. How long do we have? I mean, Six I, it's interesting. It, it was a big event, obviously. I don't know if you describe it as an art house war, necessarily. It's a bit mainstream to me. It's a bit avant-garde. Everyone was involved, apart from the Swedes who were too busy making existentialist films about relationships breaking down. Um... <laughs> If you want a real indie war, you probably need to look at something like Yom Kippur, I would say. Okay, I can't believe we're rating wars now on their, their indie sensibilities, but okay. Uh, last, but almost certainly least, you can hear him rustling away. He's eating. We've got Halloween sweets for some reason. Mm, uh, heat, heat uses this booth more, more often than we do, and I think they've left pumpkin sweets and chocolate balls chocolate and yeah. yeah and some sort of webbing thing around because it's halloween i presume i think so i found yeah. they're quite nice i'm trying to rally slightly because i've just had to have a lukewarm cup of tea made with a plastic knife um which is not the uh beverage of choice just another in the morning. insider into the glamour of uh, yeah. empire towers anyway you just heard him he's our online editor a man who's seen more west wing episodes than there are west wing episodes which is no mean feat it's james dyer hello how are you i'm good excellent have you watched any west wing this week no, not this week. I've moved on to Star Trek Voyager. Can we expect a an all-encompassing, huge, 42,000-word oral history of Star Trek Voyager? Sadly not. I have discovered upon re-watching Star Trek Voyager that it's dreadful, um, <laughs> which, which was a bitter disappointment <laughs> for me as an avowed Trekkie. Though, in its defence, I am still watching seasons one and two, and uh, I think most of these Trek series, they're really only going to get going, I think, in season four. You know, Season Voyager gets kick-started season four, DSS 9 season four, even Next Generation finds its feet sort of, well, to be fair, I think a little bit earlier than that. But Anyway, so what I'm saying is it's 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 not very good. Did you know that Kate Mulgrew, yes. who plays uh, Janeway... Captain Catherine Janeway. Captain Catherine Janeway. Once starred in a TV show called Mrs. Mrs. Columbo. Columbo. Right? I did. And uh, you did know that. Did you know that Kate Mulgrew, who played Captain Catherine Janeway... Had a cup of tea with Ali Plum the other day. Yeah, yeah. What? Yep, she met me. No way. Shook me by the hand. Really? She was really fun. She was really, really fun. She jumped between her Janeway voice, her red from Orange is the New Black voice, and her normal voice over the course of a sentence, and it was delightful. That's amazing. So what was that for? Can't tell you. You can't tell me? No. You can't tell me? I'm intrigued now. I shouldn't even have told you. Was this official Empire business? Yes. You can't tell me? Correct. 
something's gone wrong. There's a there's a glitch in the matrix somewhere. Okay, interesting. Yes, she was Mrs. Columbo, and then uh, the show didn't work. But it wasn't Mrs. Columbo because it was someone someone else. But they were just trying to capitalize on the success of Columbo. Then they changed the name of the, the show three times. Then it was cancelled anyway. She was, anyway, so she was also uh, in the Black Donnellys, playing the Donnellys mum. Got cancelled. There you go. Never mind. First question is from at KJ Crichton, who says, With the BBC putting a new soundtrack on Drive, brackets, a bad idea, are there good films or soundtracks that you'd change? This is the um, the St. Lowe thing. St. Lowe is rescoring Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. Why? Because he can, I presume. It's an experiment, James. I don't Like understand. your cup of tea this morning with the knife. So a failed experiment yeah, you made. You, yeah, you should have used a tea bag. Don't use a knife when you can use a tea bag. That's correct. It's an experiment by Zane Lowe, who obviously mm-hmm. loves the film and loves the score, mm-hmm. and he's he's bringing in some of his pals. Bands called things like the nineteen seventy five Bastille. Bring me the horizon. I've never heard of Ali. Got anything there? No. no. Um, Eric Prids. I have heard of John Hopkins, who obviously scored Monsters, people like that. Um, mm-hmm. And he is. I don't. Yeah. I was having an argument, not an argument, discussion with um, with our e- Empire's Ian Freer about this last night. And I love that first score, and it seems so integral to the way the film works and the mm-hmm. mood of the thing that I can't imagine. But I haven't seen this, so you never know. There's been, yeah. Well, what we should point out is that this is actually not just, uh, you know, something he's doing for fun in his spare time. This is actually going to accompany the film when it's broadcast this week on BBC Three. So anyone watching Drive for the first time this week, don't. On BBC Three, we'll see it with a completely new score, completely new songs. Is this endorsed by uh, yes, it is. your man? Nicholas Wynnum Riffin is 100% behind this. Um, he's been quoted as saying, I'm 100% behind this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm over the moon, Larry, he said. Something along those lines, definitely. I actually want to see it. I'm, I don't... I Yeah, why not? I mean, Ian talked me around. He was like, you know, it's an experiment. Try stuff. I once saw Metropolis, rescored by... Um, Detroit techno legend Jeff Mills at the Royal Festival Hall and that was an experience because it's not often you see a seminal silent movie um, from Germany in the company of a bunch of 40 year old men on well, drugs unless you're filled assembly in which case you do it every, every week every Wednesday every Wednesday <laughs> sometimes on Thursday too um, <laughs> and uh, that was interesting and of course there's been many rescores of of, of silent films yes. in the years and they're always interesting the man with the movie camera Cinematic mm. Orchestra's score for that is available on YouTube. Check it out; it's mm. really good. Metropolis has been scored a number of times, ta- rescored a number of times. So I don't know. What I do you think? think? I, I, I'm I'm on board with this. I think it's I think it's quite cool. Uh, it's quite an idea. The original film will still be there, still available. Why not? Why not do things? You know, for example, this week as well, uh, it was announced that Eli Roth. This is really weird, but I, I'm kind of with it in a way. Like we don't have any problems with people constantly putting on new productions of Hamlet or Macbeth or great Shakespeare plays but we do seem to have a problem with, with remakes and people messing with, with film as if it's some sort of sacred text that cannot be touched but Eli Roth this week announced that he's producing a remake of Cabin Fever uh, from 2002 which, right? from 2002 I'm going to say 2002 maybe 2003 which would be made from his original script so it's a different director it's different cast but exactly the same dialogue mm. and exactly the same See, script. They've, they've missed a trick there. Which is? Getting a new script with new dialogue. Well, yes, but they've, I guess, won the reason. Anyway, to me, that's, that's kind of it's interesting. interesting. It's it is interesting. Experiment. Yeah. Yes. It'd be more interesting if the director who directs the second one hasn't seen the first one. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm assuming that you probably would have needed to have done to get a meeting with Eli Roth about it, but you never know. Psycho, Gus Van Sant's Shot for Shot remake. Uh-huh. No one liked it, but it's an interesting experiment. It is. 
Um, I don't know. Wasn't Ian Frey suggesting something to do with Jaws? He was. I said, Ian, what would you do? And he, and surprisingly, he went Jaws. I thought, come on. John Williams is... I mean, Ian Frey lives in a house called the John Williams house, pretty much. Every time I see Ian Frey in the office, my eyes... and I run up to him really, really close and then pan up straight to his face Mm. and just look at him. He loves it. (laughs) You do. Dolly reverse zoom back to your desk. Yeah. And because you keep falling over don't you, on the way back, I remember. <laughs> he always has a godlike behind him, doesn't he, as well? Mm. Ian Freer. He does. He has to pay this He's film, one long yeah. grace note. We love Ian, and he loves John Williams, is my point. And he says John Williams' score, he would lose on Jaws and replace it with Chaz and Dave. Chaz and Dave? Chaz and Dave. It's only a shark. <laughs> Roll out the barrels. We were actually workshopping some ideas for it last night, but it's very much a work in progress. Rebel, 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 rebel. Shark! <laughs> okay uh, for anyone who does know who Jazz and Dave are um, you're, you're, you're too young <laughs> you're, in a, you're in a good place believe me oh you can look it up they're, I, they're on the Googles I've got a re-score idea what if we took Gladiator and used the uh, score from Pirates of the Caribbean boom boom take that Zimmer <laughs> ouch take that this, this is an accusation of hackery isn't it <laughs> there is a motif shall we say which is exactly the same uh, from from both schools. It's like saying let's take Back to the Future and reshoot re- it using the score from Predator. Yeah, which is for all intents and purposes identical. Wow, in, I thought in, you were going to say well, let's take the score from Gladiator and replace it with the with the theme music of the Gladiators. <laughs> Again, my references are my references are so out of date. Oh my god, Wired in the eighties. Oh dear, no, I'm not a gladi- Gladiators. Are you ready? <laughs> On my signal, <laughs> unleash hell. My first whistle, unleash hell. I'll <laughs> show those Germanians. Oh, get Crow off the Travelator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has gone downhill quick. Uh, um, hey, anybody who's about twenty, see ya. <laughs> James, what would you what would you rescore? A good film, not a bad film. But see, a bad score. see, like Jason X. No, I mean it, it depends. Rescoring is a slightly different thing. I'd certainly replace the soundtracks on a lot of them, like Ghostbusters Two. I would absolutely replace the soundtrack on because uh, you know it, it, it's no Ghostbusters in, in any way, despite what Nick says. Um, I would probably uh, extract a little bit of MC Hammer from uh, the Adams Family film. But yeah, I don't but know. who would you replace it with? Another, Chaz and Dave. another rapper, Bjork, Chaz and Dave, Bjork. This is this is a really up to date modern reference. It's a lovely <laughs> earlier when we were going. Uh, so there's a group called oh. the Nineteen. 19- 1975. I don't know who that is. Uh, we're all horribly out of touch, old people. But uh, still, Let's okay. Swap out Interstellar with Zig and Zag. Matthew McConaughey gets to wherever he goes. When with people Zig do talk Zag. about uh, uh, removing music, though, they, I think the most popular one to come off is Die Another Day. That seems to be the most hated Bond music. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, is it really bad if I come out right now and say I quite like it? I really hated the bit where it went bond, 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 bond. Well, it was unexpected. The worst, and we have to be careful here because we keep getting bond wrong on this podcast, but the worst bond score, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, is Goldeneye, which is Eric Serra. Uh, and it's absolutely yeah. just mind-bogglingly awful. It's very plinky-plonky. <laughs> it's plinky-plonky. He plays the, the bond theme on what seems to be spoons at one point. It's I, just, I, I, it's, I think they were drums and he called them the bond goes. The yeah. bond goes. It does feel a bit like a, one of those little 80s drum machines. He's got a bit carried away because he got it for Christmas. Da, 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 but to be da, fair, da. he does something very similar with Leon and actually it works really well in that film. So maybe yes, it's, it, just, it's all about the context. It works really well with Leon. It does not well work well with Bond. Stop yeah. getting Bond wrong, Eric Serra. Stop but, making Bond Leon. I know, precisely. But mm. if, if anyone's ever stuck around through the credits of Goldeneye and, uh, you know, this is back in the day when people just used to go oh, turn it off now because Bond doesn't do you know post credit stings and whatnot. but if you ever do sit through the credits of Goldeneye you will you will be 
subjected to a song on which Eric Serra himself sings. It's on the album, one of the albums I've got, Best of Bond, one of the albums I've got, uh, <laughs> Best of Bond, James Bond, 50 Years, 50 Tracks. It's on there. Uh, now and again, it comes up on random on my iPod. And I can't, if you ever see me on, if you ever see me on YouTube and I suddenly go, I look like I'm having a fit. It's because I'm desperately trying to get, get to the next song. It's called The Experience of Love. It is awful. And if you listen to the song, you will never want to experience love again. He does the same thing to the fifth element. If you stay through the credits, you get little light of love again oh. somewhere, Eric Sarah. It's Trey Francais. I uh, do feel like James Bond, 50 years, 50 tracks, sounds like a threat. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's like, you have been sentenced to 50 years, no. 50 tracks. No, it's fantastic. Because obviously it has all the classic Bond yeah. themes and uh, Die Another Day as well. It doesn't have a Skyfall because it came out before Skyfall. But it has all the great, you know, some of the great John Barry stuff. It has Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is kind of the best unofficial Bond theme ever. and has, you know, all sorts of stuff. It has KD Lang's Surrender as well. It's got some good stuff on there. Does it's it have good. the theme from the animated series James Bond Jr.? It doesn't. Ah. Does it have the Moby song? It does. It does. And well, from Bourne. <laughs> yes, just to provide a juxtaposition. And of course, the glorious Tina Turner. Well, I think we've lost a plot here. Uh, let's move on to another question from at MadHero15. A question I can't believe we've never tackled before in the podcast. Really? We've never tackled this? Ali, you're, you seem to be think we have. archivist. Well, yes, because I'm the only person who listens to the thing. There's a podcast? We yes, <laughs> this is amazing. All right, MadHero15 asks, with Interstellar on the horizon, what are some of your favourite movie spaceships good question this cannot be taken lightly there's a there's a panel they have at comic con every year called starship smackdown which is is hours and hours and hours dedicated specifically to this particular issue it's hilarious i uh, uh, you know i try and uh, if i ever have time at comic con i try and seek it out yeah. what's the it's name of the fun. spaceship in prometheus <laughs> <laughs> i've got one and literally one i don't even know if it's a spaceship because i don't think you go into space it's mm-hmm. more at, in the atmosphere but it's got to be jabba's jabba's skiff which look, isn't look, a spaceship. Well it's done. Not a spaceship. Whatever. <laughs> it's in space. It's got to be a Robin Reliant. To get there, you have to go through space. So in my mind, it's a spaceship. It's basically a car. What are you talking about? It's a ship that has space in it. It's a sort of a desert-based Alison Lee party boat. <laughs> my, my favourite movie spaceship is Morse's Jaguar. <laughs> That's not a movie. Wow. I love... Can we, keep, can we keep the references entirely from the early 90s to late 80s, please? <laughs> this is a themed special podcast. Morse's Jaguar. <laughs> what? You couldn't even say Jaguar right. Jaguar, because it was from 30 years ago. I had to make it sound like it was a sci fi thing. Too like a Jaguar. The answer to this question is The Heart of Gold from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which of course has an improbability drive inside, but it's also super white and shiny. It's very cool looking. Is that in the SmackDown? Has that ever appeared on the SmackDown? I don't know. Is the answer oh, should be. Should, should always win, because it can be anything, whatever it wants to be. What's the name of the ship in Galaxy Quest? I know the answer to this. It is the NSEA Protector. That one. Yeah, the sort of The sort of USS Enterprise where nothing really goes as, you know, as it should. And Sam Rockwell dies because he's a red shirt. Yes, I agree. It's a cracking ship. Yes. Built exactly. And a cracking film. Yeah, it is a cracking film. Mm. I'm sure you're a fan, aren't you, James? Because you like the Star Treks, and so this takes the Mickey out of Star Trek. Uh, yes, I do, I do actually like Galaxy Quest a lot, because I myself take the Mickey out of Star Trek. I Speaking mean, of which, the Narada from JJ from Star Trek is a slightly mental ship. This Nero's mining vessel. It's spiky. The thing is, to, to duck this question from my point, it's almost everything from the Star Wars original trilogy are my favourite starships, and the worst ones are almost everything from the Star, Star Wars prequel trilogy. 
because they're all a bit shiny and a bit hot roddy and I don't think it really works. I would like to suggest Benny's Spaceship, Spaceship, Spaceship from the Lego movie because mm. it's a good looking machine. What about the spaceship that appears in the middle of the life of Brian? Yeah. I think it's quite ugly. Yeah. Sad to say. But contextually, it's beautiful. It's surprising. I love the aliens inside, which is the typical blobby green turd things going, which always delights me. It surprises me every time I see that. I like the Roger Young from Starship Troopers. Reason being, it's not particularly slick or svelte. I like the fact that it manoeuvres like a Soviet-era submarine. It's like this huge, <laughs> lumbering capital ship behemoth, which turns, takes like galactic miles to turn, um, and they all crash into each other. But I, I think that's actually quite well thought out. They're not zippy or nippy. Can we have an honorary mention, James, in a subsection of the podcast I'm calling TV spaceships that are good? Can we have Red Dwarf's Bug? Red Dwarf's Bug? No, we can't. We can have Moya from Farscape if you want. Great. Although, to be fair, Star Trek is famous for the spaceships because there's a certain element of tech porn about Star Trek in particular, and the ships are quite sort of like fetishised by, uh, by Trek But fans. when they can, the disc portion can unlock from... Yeah, that bit I can take or leave. I, I mean, it, weirdly, the Federation was the Defiant is a, is a, is a strong favourite of mine, like that. Uh, Romulan Warbirds I quite like. Well, my favourite, the uncloaking is, is Yes, Un- uncloaking Romulan Warbirds. Orgasmic. Yeah, oh, <laughs> Sends me shivers even now. I feel like a 19-year-old listening to Chris's Morse chat. <laughs> You're not getting it's any of this stuff. Well, it's all a code, Romulan warbird. Are we deliberately not mentioning the Millennium Falcon? And ships say. I've already said every single ship from Star, Star Wars. So. Every single one? Yeah. Every single one? All of them. All of them? Every single one. Okay. Yeah. What's the name of the ship that Admiral Akbar <clears throat> lives on? Oh, the Mon Calamari Cruiser. Yeah. Calamari, you see? Because <laughs> he looks like a squid. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> it's a trap! Has anyone here has seen Battle Beyond the Stars? Yes. So many great ships in that. Yes. From Nell, the hero ship, Richard Thomas's ship, which uh, you know, which talks to him, is fantastic. But also Sybil Danning's ship on that, which essentially, I can't find the name of it, sorry, uh, apologies to Sybil Danning, essentially is a flying pair of breasts. And James Cameron was involved in the design of that stuff. I don't know whether he designed that ship, but he was. Uh, that was certainly one of the very first movies he worked on and brought his design genius to bear. It's a great film. I'm also a very big fan, obviously, I would say this, of uh, the Sulaco and indeed the Nostromo from Alien and Aliens. Well, the dropship, um, does that count? The drop, well, the dropship's great because uh, Cameron put that together with a sort of an airfix kit and part of it is actually an Apache helicopter. It's kind of, he, he designed it using bits and pieces from kits. Uh, so the dropship is good. Is it a spaceship? Well, it goes in space. Yes, I guess so. But the Nostromo, because it is essentially a flying oil refinery or mineral refinery. It's, on, it's from TV, but it's a 90s reference, so I'm going to sneak it in. Uh, the Aquila ship from Aquila. If you know what I'm talking about, you'll be laughing. Chris, you've uh, you've not mentioned a ship that I was expecting to come from you. Is it the Event Horizon? It is the Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. I know, but you know, I just didn't want to leap in with that one, did I? Obviously, obviously, the Event to Horizon. To be fair, that's a bitch to handle. It is. It is. It's it's hell to drive. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, if you think we've missed any out, and uh, knowing us, we probably have. Do send in your suggestions to us on the Twitter. We are at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. You can Facebook us as Empire Magazine, and you can email us podcast at Online dot com. If indeed you want to have your questions read out on next week's show or any other week's show for that matter. Okay, time now for our first interview with a man we love as surely as he loves Lamp. It is of course the brilliant Steve Carell who this week unfails the first left hook of a very unusual one-two punch early next year. He heads into Truly Dark 
and possibly Oscar-nominatable territory, that's a real word, in Bennett Miller's compelling drama Foxcatcher. But this week he's on Disney Dad Duty in Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I caught up with the former Brick Tanland when he came into London last week and asked him about a whole bunch of stuff, including the film's title. Enjoy. We are ready to rock and roll. Okay. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Steve Carell. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm very, very good. Very good. Not too bad. Uh, you're here with, ostensibly this week, Alexander and the... I'll see if you can get the title right. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's the one. Has that ever given you problems? Only at first. And then we all committed it to memory and <laughs> vowed to never screw up the title again. Do you have a shorthand to say... Alexander. Alexander. I'm yeah. sure that's what will be on the marquee. So yeah. when you see Alexander, that's what it is. It's not the Angelina Jolie Alexander. It's it's the Jen Garner, Steve Carell Alexander. Those competing Alexander projects. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You I don't mean, want to get those things confused. Oh, you guys got the drop on them by being 10 years after their movie. Mm-hmm. But still, yeah. it must be a, must be a, a, well, a sort of... Well, to avoid any confusion... It's Alexander, <laughs> Disney's Alexander. Disney's Alexander, which is very different from Oliver Stone's Alexander. Exactly. And you you were essentially, I guess, are double billing it this week because you're here not only in London with, with Alexander, but you're also here with Foxcatcher, mm-hmm. which is one heck of a double bill. Would you recommend anyone watches those two movies together? It's a very different, no. I think you have to keep them completely separate in your mind. Uh, Foxcatcher is a very, very dark, Bennett yeah. Miller film. He directed Capote and Moneyball. And and Alexander is family-friendly and sweet and funny and kind and very, very lighthearted. So yeah. they, they couldn't be more different. Uh, how far apart were they, were they shot? I guess about... Uh, I shot them in the same year. I shot Foxcatcher, then I shot the second Anchorman, and then I shot Alexander. Okay, so gradually you were just getting out of right. the Foxcatcher mindset. Yeah. Or are you one of those guys who doesn't bring... They work home with them or, or it doesn't stay with you in some level. No, you try to sort of let it go and move on to the next thing. Okay, okay. So you went straight from Brick into Alexander. Right. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a really fun. It's a Disney movie. It feels like a, a yeah, proper Disney film. It's sort of film. a throwback when you think about it. It's a type of Disney movie that I grew up with. It's mm-hmm. But with a modern spin and directed by Miguel Ortega, who tends to go a little off center. Mm. He's he's a little more of an in an indie kind of filmmaker, and I thought an interesting choice for this mm-hmm. because he's not a middle of the road guy, and he's going to make some interesting choices. And he's uh, it, it will it will still have a heart, and it will have all of that feel of a Disney movie, but there's going to be something a little extra mm. and. Uh, and a little, I shouldn't say extra, it's just going to be a little bit different from his point of view. I guess after uh, playing, uh, you know, acting in Foxcatcher and then Anchorman 2, playing two characters with whom I, find, I imagine you find it quite hard to personally relate to, this is a, this, this character, Ben, is a, is a very put-upon dad. Is yeah. that something that's easier to, to switch on to? Um, it's something that I definitely related to. Mm-hmm. In the movie, he, they refer to him as a FAMI, which <laughs> I believe that this movie coined. I'd never heard. <laughs> never heard you know, you hear Mr. Mom. You hear, you hear titles like that. But FAMI, as in Father Mommy, I don't mm-hmm. think has ever been used before. But that's what he is. He's an aerospace engineer who's an unemployed has decided to be a stay-at-home dad. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife goes back to work, and and he's just holding down the fort with the kids and their little baby. Um, so I, I identify to a certain extent, and I think 
we're similar in the sense that we're both fairly optimistic people, mm-hmm. generally speaking. And I think you kind of have to when you have kids to keep keep everybody <laughs> buoyant and yeah. uh, and protected and feel safe. Mm-hmm. So you never really let them know that it's getting to you that there, no, there's this massive. No, I think that's the last thing. You know, you you really shouldn't. Uh, you know, your your kids need to feel secure, mm-hmm. and and that starts with the parents, mm-hmm. and they they need to lead by example. Uh, we spoke to Jan Garner recently uh, for the magazine, and she says that you're the uh, one of the nicest screen husbands she's ever had. I feel exactly the same way about her. She. I knew she'd be nice. Everything I'd heard about her was that she's incredibly nice and kind and sweet, and uh, it couldn't be more true. She's she is uh, a gloriously kind person, and I, I if I could do every movie with her, I would. She said the same thing about you. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Are no, you guys? She's, <laughs> she's pretty great. She's a sweetheart. You're in cahoots. Yeah, no, uh, she's and she's really funny, and she's really smart. And she's just a good egg. You know, she's just somebody you want to hang out with. She's mm. a lot of fun. Did uh, did her husband, her real-life husband, ever come on set he dressed, did. dressed as Batman? I'm yeah, guessing, you know, not just, dressed as Batman, no. but he did come by a couple of times. Um, and I'd met him briefly a couple of times before, and he seems like such a great guy, too. It's sickening, isn't it, when people turn to be nice? I know. And their kids, fantastic. Sweet, wow. funny, intelligent. Um, so, yeah. What's that about? Pretty great family. Yeah, what is that about? <laughs> Disgusting. I don't even want them to come over because then, you know, <laughs> contrast my family. A bunch of losers. <laughs> so if your phone goes and you see it in this Jen Garner, do you just let it go? Oh, no, she can't come on. I mean, we can't We can't compare and contrast families. This, this will never <laughs> This won't end well. Um, no, we got along. We got along quite well. Fantastic. Uh, there's a, I, I won't say job interview from hell, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a an experience, I guess, your character goes through when he when he has an interview for a job in this movie. Right. Um, now, actors, of course, don't really do job interviews, but do you see auditions as job interviews? And have you ever had something as hellish as the experience oh, you go yeah. through in this, mo- well, this actors, movie? Actors. Yes, I I've had many auditions and many bad auditions, uh, and auditions that I I generally did not audition well. It, it wasn't some people are, are extremely good at it and can come in well prepared and do exactly what they were hoping to do mm. and i just was never good at it and many times i had people um rolling i could see you know, they weren't literally rolling their eyes but i could see there was very little interest um and that's a terrible way to feel in the middle of an audition that you oh my know God. Before you even begun, that you don't have it. Oh, really? And they're just being polite by letting you continue. Have you ever had that nightmare termination in the middle of maybe a monologue or you're giving a speech? Sure, and they go, I've gotten thank you oh. in the middle of something, and uh, but that's part of it. You have to you have to understand that you might not be right for it. It's just you know you, you can't take it too personally. When was the last time you actually auditioned? The last time I well I went in for get smart and I brought my picture and resume and I thought it was an audition. I thought I was going to go in and read from the script and that turned out to just be a meeting with the executives at Warner Brothers and it completely surprised me because I had my little briefcase and my my picture and resume and I was ready to sit in the hallway and <laughs> be given the, the script and be led into a room and read with somebody but uh, instead they led me, led me into a conference room which was full of Warner Brothers executives right. and the president of Warner Brothers sitting across from me. 
Um, and just right out of the blue said, we want to do Get Smart and we'd like you to play Maxwell Smart. How do you feel about that? And I was stunned. It was the first time that I had just been offered something. And um, I, I, yeah, it, it was it was a little mind boggling. Wow. But uh, very, a v- very exciting moment. So I guess even un- until the moment you turned up on set for your first day, were you still expecting to see someone else in the car or just in case? You know? <laughs> no, by that point, I, I was fairly <laughs> sure that, that <laughs> I was on board. But uh, yeah, you never know. I And, and you, I just, I try to never take any of it for granted. Yeah. That, that any of it will continue the way it has continued. And just, you know, I try to be thankful. It's it's interesting. One of the reasons I asked about it is because uh, it's very rare for actors' auditions to be so publicly available. But your Brick Tamland audition was on the Angerman DVD. It's on YouTube. If you want to go and see it, you can see. Oh. Uh, you, have you, I presume you don't. I haven't seen. Search it, it out, but it, it's it's there. And uh, I just wonder what it's like knowing that something like that is out there, or you know, or you, have you have any memories of that of that audition? I do. I I remember. Well, I knew Adam a little bit from Second City, and I'd met Will a few times socially, but I didn't really know either of them extremely well. I just remember them being kind and generous and really welcoming. And I could tell they wanted everybody to do well. I could Mm. tell that they, it was a very low-key audition, and they just wanted people to do well. And it was supportive that way. So that always helps when mm. you feel like people are on your side. Um, I remember it being fun. I just loved the script. I loved the character and the world that they were creating. So I wanted to be a part of it desperately. I think Paul Rudd was the first person they auditioned. He he wanted that movie so badly. I think, well, we all did. Mm. You know, We all wanted to just be a part of that world and yeah. that idiocy and and ridiculousness um but uh yeah it was great it was great fun it's it's amazing there's there it, it feels obviously that you, you prepared you knew what you were doing going in but there's an amazing bit where you mime eating the uh, coffee filter filled with cigarette oh, butts right. uh, can you, how do you prepare for something like that was that completely off the cuff because you it's completely mimed uh yeah i guess i didn't prepare much at all there wasn't that much to prepare for Brick because he is very little dialogue. I think that scene was as much dialogue as you ever see Brick having. Mm. Um, so no, I just kind of winged it and did what I thought might be funny in the moment, but you never know, you mm. know, you never know how something's going to play out. And, and I walked away feeling okay about the audition, but not like I got it or that I nailed it. Oh really? I just, I felt like, well, that was that, and you know we'll see what happens. Uh-huh. But I didn't, I didn't walk. I I never. I think most actors don't feel like they nailed an audition. Uh-huh. Well, that's interesting because if you if you ever do go back and watch it on YouTube or on the DVD, you can hear Adam McKay howling with laughter. Oh, and uh, it just feels to me watching that it's like that's the second you got the job. That's that's nice to say. Mm. But again, you never know if they're just politely laughing <laughs> or just trying to be kind. So you can't you can't take too much of it seriously. You just have to. You know, when you get the call, yeah. that that you get it or you don't, that's the deciding factor. Absolutely. Uh, and Steve, I just want to do something very, very quick with you. We don't have a lot of time left. Sure. But uh, we have a thing in the podcast called the IMD Bunker. Now, the IMDb is a repository of information about people. 
Not all of it is always right. Right. So there's there's some trivia about you on your page. Okay. Just want to run it past you, see if it's actually accurate. Let me let me have it. Here we go. Editor in chief of his high school newspaper, Newton South's The Lion's Roar. No, I think that was John Krasinski, because <laughs> we um, both are from Massachusetts, and John is from Newton, and B.J. Novak is from Newton, uh-huh. and I am from Acton, Massachusetts. Uh-huh. So that is completely false. <laughs> Immediately, the first one debunked. So totally wrong. You are Steve Carell, right? Can I just double check that? Yes, I am. Good. Excellent. That's one point. I uh, originally wanted to be a lawyer, but he reached a question on an application form that said, why do you want to be a lawyer? And you couldn't think of anything. That is true. That is true. Amazing. Were you expecting that question? Or was that no, be? but that, uh, when you started the lawyer thing, I, that, that rang true to me. Okay. Uh, owns and operates the Marshfield Hills General Store in Marshfield, Massachusetts. That is true. The operates part is interesting to me. I actually it. work in it. I own it and my sister-in-law manages it. Okay. And we go back as much as we can and, and check in and, and make sure that the, the muffins are being properly baked. <laughs> Competitive prices? Uh, oh, Yeah. Who's, yeah, it's just a little country store. It's okay. not, you know, we're not certainly not trying to gouge anyone. It's just, okay. just trying to keep, it's 150 years old for that area. It, that's pretty old. That's amazing. And so we're just trying to preserve that, that little bit of history. So you don't have some huge rival. It's in the store next door. No. Oh, it's in the sleepiest little town you've ever been in. So it's no, it's, a, it's almost, it's this picturesque, idyllic little Norman Rockwell country store. Wow. Do you, I, I, I imagine you must find, you know, your fans turn out from time to time. Uh, Corellians, I'm going to call them. Corellians yeah. at the general store? Mm-hmm. Um, mostly they're people from the neighborhood and the town just mm-hmm. stopping by for a cup of coffee and to mail a letter. That's It's <laughs> pretty low-key. <laughs> it's a long way to go if you want to do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, last one here. You and Jim Carrey were both ice hockey goalies in your childhood. That's true. That is true. Were you yes. any good? I was pretty good. I played through college. Oh, really? Yeah. But not enough to, to uh, turn professional? Uh, no. Okay, and the last one here. Well, this is a good one. Suffers from hay fever. Is this true? Um, I think I used to, but not so much anymore. Okay. <laughs> and what a weird, like, who cares? <laughs> like, like, like that's some revelation to put in IMDb. <laughs> oh, really? Suffers from hay fever. Well, there you go. We got you. We should have a benefit for Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll start the telethon right yeah, away. Exactly. <laughs> See if we can get it sorted out. Uh, Stephen, it's just one last thing I wanted to ask you. Um, I'm always interested in people's production companies, the the origin of their names. Now, mm-hmm. your production company is Carousel. Carousel. Can you talk which about Which is short for my family name, mm-hmm. which was Caroselli. Mm-hmm. And and then Corel is a derivation of Caroselli. Fantastic. So, you know, Not you, a great story, you but don't a necess- Well, you don't necessarily then have a link to the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. It's, it's more of a fam- familial link. It is a, a familial link. Fantastic. Excellent. Steve, it's been a pleasure, sir. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, it's movie news time. We love movie news here. Uh, Where should we start? News this week confirmed, because there's been some speculation about it, that Christian Bale, or if you're Aaron Sorkin, Chris Bale. (laughs) Yes. I've never heard that before. Aaron. Aaron Sorkin. Enron. Enron Sorkin. Whatever. You've really confused me now. Aaron Sorkin has confirmed this week what's been in the ether for a little while, that, that Christian Bale, or Chris Bale, if you're Aaron Sorkin, is going to play Steve Jobs in the Jobs biopic, which seems to be amusing James immensely. I, well, think, and I, I, think, I think Arlie Plum has something he oh, Arlie. to give her. <laughs> Hold fire, Arlie. Yeah, plume, please. Plume. <laughs> Arlie Plume. Because I've got more to say about this, but not a lot more, it's got to be said. Um, the film is... Danny Boyles to direct at this point. Denis. Denis Boyles. 
Hi, Denis. <laughs> I love Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, Denis Boyle is... What the hell's going on here? <laughs> Dan- Danny Boyle is directing this film from Orange Talking Script. So that, to me, sounds like a great combination with Christian Bale, Chris Bale. Three hours of excellence. It makes uh, me want there to be a trilogy. If he can do Social Network, then Apple, what would be the next one? Bebo or... Well, the, the um, Tetris movie. Yes! Sorkin needs to get classic on that. Three, a classic tech threesome. Neil Young's Pono player. If he does four, then it will be a treacherous. Very good, I think. Aaron Sorkin said, and I want to quote him on this because I just like the way he phrased this, we needed the best actor on the board in a certain age range, did and that's Chris say, Bale. Did he then say, on the board, Miss Ford? <laughs> what? So we keep up the 90s references? Or, sorry. I Carry can't on. understand that reference. Rosemary Ford, who used to co-host a generation game alongside Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> 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 oh, my God. And he would say, what's the scores on the board? Miss Ford, because he's quite simple and can only right. say things in rhyme. Okay. <laughs> Let me read that quote again. We needed the best actor on the board in a certain age range, and that's Chris Bell. He didn't need to audition. Well, hopefully not, if he's the best actor. So, yeah, so Christian Bale will be playing Steve Jobs, and it will be a film that straddles, that spans three key parts of his life. And hopefully will expose him as being not that nice a Superman that everyone, or some people at least, some of his big fans obviously seem to think he is. The Mutt's Nuts. And he's a complicated, dark, twisted, difficult genius. Mm. So there's a lot to play around with. And I can see a three-hour Sorkinese movie here quite easily. Uh, I think he's a great shout. And there are mm. some photographs of them. When you pick them at the right age, where they look startlingly mm. similar with the kind of grizzledy beard... Uh, not that that is a reason to go, oh, yeah, cast him, because they look slightly similar at some points in their lives. But, uh, you know, it's it's of note. But it's better casting, for example, than Leonardo DiCaprio, who was previously attached to the role and then went off to make The Revenant with Alejandro Gonzalez, or G, as he now calls himself, in Aritu. Oh, Mukji. Um, Mukji. Sorry, Mukji. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think this is uh, very interesting. Uh, you know, great actor, signs up for film written by great writer. Aaron Sorkin and uh, Sorkin and uh, great director what could possibly go wrong best comment I've seen about this came from someone on Twitter I'm sorry I don't remember the name said basically uh, you know uh, a typical Hollywood uh, Steve Jobs film that comes out last year and then one year later they bring out a better uh, better upgrade version uh, you know but it's, it's, it's kind of true but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm worried in a way because Chris Bale he's no Ashton Kutcher is he it's true. and that's a worry no Although Ashton Kutcher did look an awful lot like Steve Jobs. Did he? Yes, it, okay. when he was young. But the thing with Steve oh, Jobs was a famously quite volatile personality. I think that I, I want to see Bale playing that role. And uh, obviously Sorkin is very... Aaron Sorkin. Uh, Aaron Sorkin is very, um, uh, very dialogue heavy. And I'm, I'm, this is a film I really, really, really want to see. And not just because him writing it caused my West Wing interview to be pushed back about 15 times. Indeed. But I think you're right. I think Ali's right. It's like, you know, hopefully Boyle and Sorkin can avoid the beatification of Jobs, which has happened uh, since his death. And before his death, actually, you know, as well, people were lauding him as this uh, amazing figure. And he is an amazing figure. He's a genius. And he revolutionized the, the way the modern world works in many, many ways. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see whether they, they don't shy away from some of the more volatile aspects of his temperament. Mm. Was he good, for example, at threatening to trash the scene if someone moved the lights? <laughs> Anyone know whether that's, that's another reference to something that happened a few years ago with Christian Bale? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The lights said, I don't and want an iPad mini, smaller screen, it's fucking distracting! <laughs> it, in fairness, that did happen within the last 20 years. <laughs> that is true, sorry. I don't know why I refer to that. Uh, okay, good, excellent. Let's move on to something else. Okay! Sure, all right. Mine. Big question, though, we haven't answered. 
Go ahead. Who is going to play Siri? <gasps> I was thinking maybe Channing Tatum. Good. Well, I don't but- like Siri's new voice. He sounds like a preppy student. Has Siri's he... voice changed? Yeah. It used to be the guy who did the uh, the voice on the... Um, Hello, the Chris. Cube. The Cube. The guy who did the voice on the Cube. No, not the guy who did the voice on the Cube. The guy who did the voice on The Weakest Link. Ten seconds. What about made. Stephen Toast? <laughs> Stephen Toast. That'd be great. <laughs> Fire no nuclear weapons! Is there an app for that? <laughs> there should be an app for that. Just a smidge of possible comic book movie news, which is that, despite us pointing out in the X-Men spoiler podcast, which you can still listen to, uh, X-Men Days of Future Past, it's excellent. Go and listen to it. There's a character in it called Quicksilver, who's also in Avengers Age Age of Ultron, played by a different actor and is obviously a different character for different reasons. But he was very popular, uh, Brian Singer's incarnation of it, of the character, the very fast, grey-haired speedster. And it looks like, despite him being so powerful that if you actually placed him in most situations, the fact that he can go so fast that time appears to him to slow down, there are rumours that there will be a chance to include him in the follow-up, the 1980s follow-up, X-Men Apocalypse. Nothing's confirmed, but it seems likely that we're going to have more super-fast fun times. Yeah, Simon Kimberg on the podcast said that they're looking forward to exploring more to do with the character because they just left Evan Peters... Uh, behind as they went off to Paris and then off to Washington on their little sojourn uh, and kind of a lot of people point now that if they'd taken him along the movie might have been three minutes long and yeah. we could have all gone home but I think yeah he's very powerful but there's, he can be stopped so it'll be very very interesting to see what happens now I, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what happens when Age of Ultron comes out and people go hang on what what Quicksilver what yeah uh, I don't understand there's a. I, I should point out the the source of this is that second unit director Brian S M R Z. So Smurz Jones. Don't ask me. It's a silent Smurz. He says this. Well, there will be another Quicksilver scene, which I'm looking forward to. That'll be fun. Implying that'll be another individual cameo type thing, rather than. Well, maybe you'll come in and save the day. I'd quite enjoy that. Going to keep the comic book talk to a minimum last week because we blathered on about stuff so much last uh, last week. Uh, however, uh, the Avengers Age of Ultron trailer has hit... The first one has hit the internet. Uh, for, at first, unofficially, it was leaked, and then Disney and Marvel reacted very, very quickly and got an official version out, which kind of scuppered their plans to give Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. a big ratings boost on Tuesday by having the trailer debut on TV. But anyway, uh, there it is. It's fantastic. Uh, we think it's great. I wrote a trailer breakdown of sorts on a train with crappy Wi-Fi, so it's a bit all over the place. But anyway, go and check it out it's on the website and watch the trailer as well. Not that news. Next week is Halloween. No. Yes, it's true. No. Yes, it's true. No. And on hey, the Empire website, empireonline.com. Do, do we have the exclusive on that? It's a shared exclusive. Okay, great. With everyone else. Okay, it's a worldwide shared exclusive. Are we doing a spoiler podcast, a Halloween spoiler podcast? Ooh, that would be telling, wouldn't it? be a surprise. It needs to be a surprise for all of us. Yeah. But next week on the Empire uh, website, we are going to be having, we're going to be revisiting five iconic movie monsters and tracking down the people that played them one a day and talking to them about things that they did then and things that they've done since. Who are they? Oh, well, just start. Who, okay, who are we starting with? Can we give away who oh. we're starting with? We're starting with the man who played Freddy... I almost said Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> One of the truly great screen monsters. <laughs> Freddy Mercury, everybody. Freddy oh, Krueger, Robert England, is kicking things off. And then we have four more, one a day, a uh, little kind of like mini horror advent calendar for you to enjoy. So check that out. Okay, now we've exhausted all that Hollywood has to offer us in terms of movie news. Let's uh, hear from our second guest who bashed his way at the pub booth earlier on this week in a giant tank. It is David Ayer, the writer-director of Brad Pitt, Logan Lerman, Shia LaBeouf, John Bernthal and Michael Peña, Tank Thriller Fury. He's one of the few guys in Hollywood who can accurately
accurately depict what it's like when real men get together and pressurize situations and just do manly things like this week's podcast. See Training Day, for example, which he wrote. End of Watch, which he wrote and directed as evidence. Do not see this year's sabotage. It'll just confuse you and make Absolutely you sad. Uh, when David Eric came at the booth this week, Phil leapt at the chance to talk to him about that movie and his forthcoming DC Warner Brothers superhero slash super villain flick, Suicide Squad. Uh, Phil did not explain who Captain Boomerang is, which is an egregious oversight Sorry. for which he shall be punished. Otherwise, do try and enjoy this interview and don't have that just gnawing away at you forever. Enjoy. We were just sort of talking about this on the way up to the podcast booth, but the idea that these men went into battle in, in inferior equipment and the psychological impact that that has on them. Um, yes, yeah. Uh, the, you know, the Sherman tank was obsolete before it ever hit the continent. And, you know, because of the way the war unfolded, it had never really encountered uh, German tanks in mass until Normandy, where you know the crews discovered they were hope- hopelessly outgunned. But they had been told they had superior machines, and uh, you know there were situations of of German Tigers just picking off Sherman tanks like ducks in a row. Mm. Um, it was really we had a long way to go. <laughs> Yeah, the Germans called them Tommy cookers, didn't they? They were just yeah infernos. And your film doesn't sort of shy of showing you know that kind of stuff. I was interested because you had a different sort of war movie until around the time of Saving Private Ryan, where they showed war in a whole different way. And and subsequent to that, movies have not you know spared us the actual realities of war. Um, do you think the end? It's the end of those kind of boys' own uh, eagles where eagles dare type films now. No, I don't think so. I think there's always uh, room for different styles of film. And, you know, the sort of uh, old-fashioned, for lack of a better word, executions, uh, you know, they could be fun. You know, a little bit of the Indiana Jones version, I guess. You know, the right story, the right director, uh, you know, I wouldn't rule out that kind of film. Mm. But I think personally... You know the way to go is is more towards psychological realism, uh, which is what I, I tried to do here. We well, you, you've mentioned Come and See, the great Belarusian f- uh, war film Apocalypse Now. Obviously, is a bit of a touch point too. But I wondered for those people that are coming to this film, maybe haven't seen a lot of war films, wanted to watch Brad Pitt in action, perhaps discovering the genre. Where would you, you know, when they've seen Fury, what would you recommend they go and see next? Wow, uh, I don't know. Maybe watch a Little Telly. Uh, <laughs> Un- unwind. Um, maybe, maybe I'm not as much of a fan of cinema as I should be. <laughs> <laughs> really? I like I like very obscure films. That's that's the problem. Okay, so what telly would you recommend they go and watch next? Uh, the Nick is pretty good. I'm enjoying that. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's talk a little bit about like the preparation process for this, which was like tough. I know. What did you What did you do to Logan Lerman? Oh, he seems traumatized. Uh, a little bit. Yeah, he has the thousand yard stare. Well. You know, in the film, he he has the worst first day at school ever, and he constantly had to be the new guy on set. Um, Part of my job was to keep him on psychological edge, which I believe I was successful at. I don't know if he's come back, though. (laughs) How was he last night at the the gala? Does he seem, was he staring off across Leicester Square? Well, he didn't hurt anyone, and and he was coherent. No, I mean, he he had really... uh, I think the most difficult job on that set, which is playing, you know, the new guy playing the guy who has the the growth and the change over the course of the film, and the one guy who isn't allowed to be numb. Uh, mm. You know, the other tank crews are all sort of 
coping with the war in their own fashion and he's being exposed to it for the first time but there is no war it's a movie set so we had to create tension and 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 all those terrible things that go with war reading about what happened in the boot camp i'm beginning to think that i don't fist fight my friends enough and i'm gonna have to start like i'm i don't know but it seems like that that really works to bond people and uh and then, you know, the idea of these big A-list movie stars all kind of rolling their sleeves up and getting stuck in speaks a lot of their trust in you. Well, it's it's not, you know, just a Donnybrook. You know, there was, there was a martial arts expert, my friend Richard, who trained the cast, and they did wear safety gear occasionally. And, you know, there weren't supposed to be any direct shots to the face, but, you know, tempers flare. There's a sequence in the middle of the movie which is, which is set in, in, a, in a German town in a house and there's a there's a dinner which is like the last supper almost it's a really intense scene and i you know it's well acted but you can actually feel that these actors are not at that moment in time really liking each other very much as well there's a it's a layered amount of animosity in that scene um which is very powerful uh, can you talk a little bit about shooting that yeah the the infamous dinner scene the, it really was the most difficult scene to film uh, you know, one would think that you're drying undercover and it'd be a respite from the, the mud and the rain and the cold. But the, you know, the psychology in that room, the tension, um, it, it is, it is amazing performances and it's about a family. You know, the movie's really about a family, this, these, these lads that are closer than brothers. And, you know, the problem with family is is family can get under your skin like no one else. Going back to the boot camp, just briefly, you you got these guys and you kind of broke them down over a, process, over a period of a, of a week, but there was a lot more prep than that. The first thing you did was get their mobile phones, in a, collect them all together. Anyone double packing? Anyone trying to get any pull a fast one past you? Uh, if they tried, they didn't get away with it. I mean, you know, the boot camp was run by Navy SEALs. Brad was the first guy to surrender his phone, and that set you know, the bar for everybody else. I mean, th- these guys, they weren't anything but dedicated. And it's unusual to have a cast uh, surrender themselves uh, to a process and to a difficult process. And you can feel that on the screen. I mean, they bonded incredibly uh, during the during the boot camp. I went and visited a couple of times, but I really tried to stay away. They're actually sealed off uh, in, in their own little world, they had their own camp, and uh, everybody was was uh, forbidden from going, from treading. And, uh, really, so it was literally just the five of them and the seals for a week. Yes, no one else, no contact with the outside world. No, no phone calls from Angelina. Nothing. No, no it was <laughs> wow, hermetically sealed. Um, and they they really were put through hell. It was it was it was a uh, uh, you know there's a dark art to this to this kind of training and i think the the seals understand it uh, better than anyone and shia shia had, had done his own prep hadn't he with the national guard yeah. prior to that i wanted to ask you about him because for me um and you obviously can't have an opinion on this and other people may feel differently but i thought he was the standout i thought he was his performance in this movie was really astonishing but there seems to be a bit of a disconnect people people are starting to build this impression of him like he's some kind of crazy you know, late era Marlon Brando. Can you talk a little bit about about what he's actually like working with day to day? Yeah, I mean, there is obviously the the, the crazy Shia meme, and that you know he had uh, his right arm removed for the film. And, 
He didn't have his right arm. You can confirm. No, no, no I don't think so. He grew back six inches of femur cut out, so he could be shorter. Um, he he's a real actor. He's an immersive actor, and he demands, um, you know, from from a director that you you exercise control and dominion over him. Um, it's interesting, you know. He I think part of his process is is to apply pressure. And then use the pressure that's applied back upon him. Uh, he's brilliant. I, I think he's absolutely brilliant. And there's no showboating in this film, and especially from him. He's very raw and present, and you just see this incredible pain in, in his eyes. Um, it's it's really a unbelievable, understated performance, and I hope more people, uh, you know, I hope he gets recognized for that. Yeah, I mean, it might be... There might be, you know, best supporting type um, accolade, maybe. I don't know. You want to jinx it, particularly. But sorry, just to just to expand a bit on that on that idea of him putting pressure on you as a director, is that rare amongst actors to do that to to push back on stuff on set, or is that something you do in the preparation process? A uh, little bit of everything. He was good at at um, being a barometer for honesty, and if there's something going on on set that he didn't believe, he'd be the first to let me know. And, and most of the time I'd ignore him and then uh, you know every now and then I, I'd, I'd realize that he was, he was right and I, I needed to sort of uh, again chase chase the truth it's, it is interesting the, the scene there's a scene where Logan is, is forced to do something a, a bit nasty by, by War Daddy and by Brad and it was it was really a about Shia's moratorium on Logan Lerman as an actor it was interesting and take one you know, Shia's like, I don't believe it. I don't believe this. I don't believe what's going on. I don't believe him. Really? And then, uh, by take two or three, you could just see the the respect Shia had for Logan. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth, man. Right there. Yeah, yeah. So it's really because he's not he's not in shot in that scene, is he? No, no. But uh, these guys would stand around the monitor and watch each other's performance, and then. And then just have a, a just a piss take, just rip each other apart. I mean, or, or or they could also be very supportive too. It depended on on the situation. Um, you know, you're very exposed as an actor. I mean, the best allegory for acting is uh, turning around slowly, naked on a stage while you're on fire. Who doesn't love to do that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there really were somewhere between a cast and an actual crew in this movie, and that kind of comes across. He famously didn't wash which seems to be the thing that kind of people fixated on the most. But he did go swimming pretty much every day. So, it, okay. yeah, it, it's 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 fun. The little stories are fun. But, you know, the, I mean, the truth of it is, you know, he shadowed a military chaplain, a uh, United States Army chaplain, and, and studied scripture and learned ministry to soldiers, uh, learned the faith, uh, did a lot of preparation work for this beyond the fun stuff of, of having his, his ear uh, chainsawed off. And his leg and his tibia. Yeah. There's not much left of Shah, to be honest. No, no, it was a head in a box. Oh. <laughs> um, you, you, I read a quote where you said that, that Sabotage, a movie which probably didn't do as well as you might have hoped or didn't work out like you might have hoped, you couldn't have done Fury. Well, there would have been a lot wrong with Fury if you hadn't made Sabotage. Can you elaborate on what exactly you meant by that? Sabotage was my my director's 
training gymnasium in a lot of ways. It, it was interesting. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned camera placement. I made choices in that film uh, with coverage and photography that I sort of got out of my system. Um, I still had the the end of watch hangover and you know applied that style, brought it forward, and then discovered that it it only it only goes so far and it enabled me to be a more patient filmmaker on Fury, which is a much more analytical camera, a much more composed uh, kind of sober camera. Yeah. It, it couldn't be a much more different camera to the one that you, that you used on End of Watch in particular. Um, was Sabotage a demoralizing experience in any way? No, it's a good movie. I mean that's that's the thing. It it is it is a good movie. It's it's very pulpy. It's very uh it's a ride. It's very much a ride and and you know there's some wicked humor in it. It it was disappointing that it didn't do better. Uh and it it was just slaughtered critically and you know it, it it's difficult to make any film and and one hopes for success. Uh but you know I I love working with Arnold. He's an amazing guy. He is very normal uh, fella, uh, one, of, one of the lads in, in a sense. And I just, I just wanted it to be more successful. Suicide Squad, should it happen? Boot camp for that? I have a, uh, a cookbook for preparation that I like to run actors through, so I don't think I would change. Fair enough. Um, I don't know an awful lot about that particular DC property. Is it something that you've been familiar with for, for a while now? I, I could say extremely little about it. Uh, <laughs> Tell us what you can say about it, and then I won't ask anything else. Okay, I could say it's it's a dirty dirty dozen with uh, supervillains, and then I can ask the question of, uh, does a movie really need good guys? Does a movie really need good guys? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Because the Sinister Six is happening, and there's a lot of speculation about you know how that works. But the but the uh, Suicide Squad does actually have an Australian racist in it, and I haven't seen one of those on screen for a while. <laughs> How are you going to cast that role? Uh, like one would cast any other role. You're not gonna. You're not gonna dial back the Aussie racism element of that character. I I I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I do in my typical fever dream of directing. Training Day is is you know Denzel's second Oscar. I watched it again this weekend. It remains like a superb superb piece of uh, cinema and. and I wanted to ask you about, it's got some great dialogue in it, um, King Kong ain't got shit on me. That was presumably... That was Denzel. That was that, was that Denzel improv? Yes, that was a Denzel improv. Let's talk about the opening sequence in that cafe, though. I think mm. that cafe, that diner, rather, was used yes. in, in Seven as well, I believe. It's It's been in a lot of films, yeah. actually. It's been in a lot of films. It's in downtown LA, and, and uh, it, it's visited quite often in, in our cinema universe. Uh, but that was all, that was scripted. That was all scripted. This is the, script, the the scene where Ethan Hawke's character meets Alonzo Harris, Denzel, yes. for the first time, and and in in a space of I don't even know how much how many pages of dialogue it is, you find out an awful lot about Denzel's character without him saying anything at all about himself. Exactly, um, it's a really remarkable bit of writing, and I just wondered if you could sort of tell me maybe is that something you did right at the very beginning of the the, the whole process. Was that that must have been a key scene for you to nail? Yeah, I, I wrote that script uh, in 1996, and it took about uh, four four something years to get made. 
and and it had sort of an interesting journey. There was the the Matt Damon Sam Jackson version with with a, with a different director that we tried mounting up. Uh, and the studio was like Matt who, and then Goodwill Hunting opened up, and 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 then we lost Matt as he was getting offered everything. And at the time, Hollywood really wasn't making cop movies. The genre was basically dead. Uh, it had sort of gone into genre convention land and you know training to was very unique i mean obviously this idea of the gangster cop which is now something of a trope uh i had people tell me i didn't know anything about law enforcement and this was all before that infamous rampart scandal had uh had been exposed so it, it was really ahead of its time and then and then the scandal came out and 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 the situation sort of caught up with with the film but uh it was really one of the most amazing experiences i mean antoine absolutely killed it as a director and it was watching him work on that set that you know inspired me to become a director really mm-hmm. wow you closed the lff the movie that opened the lff the imitation game could be like a sort of quasi sequel to u571 um, in the sense that it's about the Enigma, breaking the Enigma code at Bletchley Park using the German... I guess you know where I'm going with this question. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> Do you still get complaints yes, about, about changing the nationality of that submarine? But I didn't do it. No. That's that's the thing. Who did it? Let's, let's name some names here. Whose I, decision was that? Well, I, I was one of three writers. I was hired to punch up some dialogue on a script. The story was already written. Mm. And I punched up the dialogue, and, and, and then I was the idiot that went on British radio talking about it. And ever since then, I've, I've been excoriated <laughs> for, for perverting uh, the national history. Um, we get really upset about this stuff. Yes, yes. I mean, even Private Ryan cops some flack for not having enough British people, any British people in it, even though it was set in the American sector. So, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't take it personally. It's just, <laughs> you know, there's there's an element of uh, of history that you want to be honest to. And, and you've never been afraid to have history, you know, those people on your shoulders. I imagine when you're making Fury, you're thinking about the people that served, obviously, every day. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, mean, people live this. Yeah. People suffered through this and that's what the movie is about is the effect of war on people it's it's a study of the psyche it's not some battle movie it's not a battle procedural it's it's just a family that lives in a tank and kills people and attacks each other and loves each other yeah well you've carried the, the those memories on your shoulders and also obviously you know the the, the LAPD and, and the other movies you've done have had that U571 I guess too now you've got the fanboy communities potentially on your shoulders. Are you, how do you feel about that? Are you going to just avoid the internet, or are you interested in kind of engaging with them? Um, well, I, I do need to uh, send and receive emails, so <laughs> we'll have some internet usage. Um, it, it's interesting. It's it's interesting. I I I love the passion they have for these um, these characters and in these worlds. I think there's something absolutely incredible about um, the comic genre and that technology has finally caught up with pen and ink to render these these fantastic worlds in a way that, that feels believable and visceral to audiences. Um, you know, the comic genre 
it, it really is sort of a secular religion in that regards. Uh, the, the mythology that these characters represent, uh, this idea of them as fallen gods on earth, I mean, all that's incredibly intriguing to me, and, and I can't wait to start exploring those corridors. What was the first comic book you read when you were a kid or older? I don't know. Uh, I used to uh, disappear in the library and uh, just read them, you know, read the anthologies and just sit there for hours just pouring through them. I loved Silver Surfer as a kid. It was very existential. Not only a screenwriter and a director, but you've also acted in Training Day. You cameoed. <laughs> and who can forget Russian, the Russian uh, gangster? Yes, yeah, that was a very nuanced, subtle uh, performance. Did you have like a boot camp or? No, no, I just brought my own personal angst and pathos to that character. You can check him out. I don't know which one you are because you're kind of wearing a balaclava. Yes, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy in the passenger seat of the Humvee. Oh, so, okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> it, the film should be called Russian Gangster, uh, number one. Watch out for watch out for David Ayer in that one. And, and, uh, and for your next movie, I look forward to hopefully seeing you again on the Empire Podcast. Thank you so much for talking Thank you. to us today. Do you think that Captain Boomerang's catchphrase should be, you won't like me when I'm Boomerangry? <laughs> no, it should be, I'll be back. Eh? Hey, Because he throws, um... Uh, oh, the things, the Australian... Uh, oh, bits of wood, what are they called? Frisbees! Uh, 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 Aerobies. Aerobi. Aerobi, <laughs> as created by Aron Sorkin. Have I pronounced every single word wrong in this podcast today? Oh dear. Should we re-record the whole thing? It's Wallaby, actually. Wallaby. Uh, was he a nice guy, David Ayer? David Ayer, is a, he is a nice guy. He's, he's as you've listened to the, the interview, mm. he's, he's a serious man. He grew mm. up in South Central Los Angeles. He joined the US Navy. He's made, you can see, you can sense what he's like from his films. He's a serious dude. Mm. I am a clown. So the chemistry there was interesting. Um, as in there was none. No, as no. in he tried to kill you halfway through. He didn't try and kill me halfway. I, no, I enjoyed the interview very much. He's an interesting, very interesting man, and uh, I, you know I like his films a lot. Mm. Um, I haven't seen Sabotage. I, I honestly cannot fathom that the same guy who wrote and directed End of Watch and mm. Fury, which we're about to discuss in the review section, also directed Sabotage, which is... I, I just I, I can't get it was it an aberration did he did he trip and fall did, did, what, what happened I find it so interesting that he said in the interview which I've already edited that he doesn't he, he says yes Sabotage was critically panned yes he didn't do well commercially but he loves it and he thinks it's a great film he, he had nothing but good things to say about Sabotage he's it's mistaken not, it's not though <laughs> It's not. It was cut back. It was hacked around with. It, it clearly with. was. Yeah. It, it has. It has all the hallmarks of being studio fucked. But still, it's kind of. I don't mm. know. Anyway. Anyway. Yes. Let's move on to his new film, Fury, which is much better than his last film, Sabotage, which was much worse than his previous film, End of Watch. So, Fury, World War Two, Tanks, Brad Pitt, me again. This was made for you, wasn't it? This film was made for me. Empire's magazine review, I really agree with on this. I mean, it, it makes the point that up until Saving Private Ryan, there was a certain sort of Second World War movie. Um, it was a more boys' own vibe, usually, with some exceptions, obviously. Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron, uh, Igor Klimov's Come and See. Um, the, those are the two films that this one really kind of references. It's next level grim. This film, <laughs> I, I have to say, I was surprised by it. It's a really oppressive mood. It's set, the, the, basically it's set in 1945, and the the war is effectively over. But as Brad Pitt's character, War Daddy, points out, this sort of surrogate father to his tank crew, a whole lot more people got to die before it's over. And so there's this sense of of just mute despair that that nothing they're doing really means anything anymore. The people that are dying are dying for no reason because the thing is done and yet the Germans keep throwing 
you know, men, women and children at them in the name of Hitler's total war. So that's the context. They're no longer fighting this sort of heroic. What's that Homer Simpson line about their own? Was it Bart Simpson? Two quick, two two just wars Star Wars and Second World War this is not doesn't feel like that at all it doesn't feel like the Second World War that we know not even Saving Private Ryan which has its bleak moments mm. um, so that's the context and it's kind of an interesting environment to explore some of the tank action is astonishing I talked about it in the podcast with him there's one particular tank duel which is one of the pieces of cinema of the year it'll stop you in your tracks it will literally stop you in your tracks I wish I could think of a pun um, for that oh that yes and my real problem with the film was the final third, I think. Whilst it's hallucinogenic sort of quality, I don't think it really fits that well with the rest of the movie. Suddenly you have this kind of third act Alamo scenario without giving too much away. I think it's all in the trailer, though. Um, it, it's them against the cream of what's left of the German army. And uh, up to that point, it's been playing it really, really, really kind of historically accurate to the point where... You know, as he said in the podcast, all the serial numbers of all of the equipment was correct. Everything was spot on um, to show what war really looked like. Um, And suddenly you have this rather overblown, kind of a bit silly uh, final third, which Mm. I thought let the film down a little bit and undermined what came before. Because what came before is, you know, Mm. this is the thing, though. It's like war is not fun. Cinema is fun. You know, it's supposed to be, by and large. What about the cast? Because you've got some very exciting acting talent. You do. And for me, as I said, Charlotte Burf is the standout. He's fantastic as the kind of Barry Pepper sort of religious dude. You know, in the film, he has a really strong presence. Doesn't say a lot, but really kind of exudes this, this, this you know, otherworldly vibe. They're all good. You know, they, they bonded painfully before the film shoots. And that does come across. Some of the characters are better written than others. Um, potentially, and the Logan Lerman character, who's our kind of route into this world, is the new recruit to the tank. I don't know; it all feels rather compressed. You agree with that, didn't you? Yeah, I I, I agree with you. It, it strains credibility certainly in, in the final act. In fact, it's a different film. I think there's a one point where Brad Pitt's on the on the, the sort of fifty cal turret of the tank, just gunning down Nazis like you know, like some sort of arcade game. You could swap him for eighty Schwarzenegger and it wouldn't look out of place. It was just it was very, very bizarre in a film that had sort of striven for verisimilitude up until that point. I agree with you, it's very bleak. I think I don't think it's a bad film. I think it's a good film. It just I think it falls shy of being a great film, in part because of that ending uh that end section but also I think it tries to deal with complex themes so the whole sort of you know law amidst conflict using sex as a weapon sort of rape in war and things like that but he deals with it in quite a clumsy sort of cack handed way there's a bit where um uh, they walk a uh, uh, sort of like an SSPOW through the camp, and Brad Pitt goes and punches him. So we're like, oh yeah, take the box. Brad Pitt doesn't like Germans, you know. It, it feels very, very, very sort of like um, painted in very broad strokes. And the bit where um, Logan Lerman's character sort of encounters a sort of a pretty German girl, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's that, there's a whole slightly weird sequence there. The capping point to that sequence, I thought, was very, very sort of rushed and very clumsy. Uh, the, without spoiling, yes, it. I agree. I think I think Saving Private Ryan could be accused of one or two of those things too I mean you have to condense so much stuff into a short space of time and and, I haven't been to war so this is all speculation my grandfather was in the US Army and he was in Normandy and he didn't much like Saving Private Ryan he was a plumber wasn't he he was a plumber in Normandy during the invasion Um, he was just there on a work experience program no he was he was shot by the Germans he experienced that stuff and he didn't like to talk about it in common with most veterans so it's left to us to see, you know, cinema introduces us to what these things are actually like. And I think in credit to David Eyre, 
and Spielberg and one or two of those other filmmakers you mentioned, they're actually trying to make films war look like it was, mm. you know, and that's not a fun experience. So it's a bit weird. You know, it's on the cusp of what's entertaining and what's actually really difficult to watch. But it does sound like we're criticizing. It, it is a very good yes. film. I enjoyed it a lot. I also learned an awful lot. I, I didn't realize that, for example, how inferior the, uh, you know, the American Sherman tanks were to the, to the German vehicles. Tell us about that, Phil. You don't want me to tell you about that, but yes, they were. They were hideously inferior. So if you went into battle and you encountered the enemy, you were going to bollocks basically, yeah. by and large. So that's a that stuff comes through in the crew because they know that, and the, and the, the stress and the pressure and the fatalism and all of that, you know, the, it soaks. It's it sort of comes off the screen at you, and I think that's where where the film works. Yeah, it's very and, well researched. It's mm. very you know, it feels you know up until that last section feels feels very believable, very real. But important question: Should you shell out your hard cash to go and watch this film? Yeah, uh, yeah, yes. If I you're think... into this sort of thing, yeah, it's three stars, so it's a recommendation for us. Um, but yeah, yes, with fl- with flaws, definitely. But it's got some really impressive Which is things in it. Three stars, three stars for Fury. And let's move on now to the Babadook. If you have a sofa, hide behind it. Indeed, the Babadook. That this is a, a film that, like its uh, protagonist, kind of crept up on people, I think, and then tried to eviscerate them. It's an, a, a low-budget Australian horror film directed by uh, 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 Jennifer Kent, an Australian director, probably best known for her role in uh, Babe, Pig in the City. But it's very good. Basically, it's a um, story of a, a single sort of mother, uh, a widow, played phenomenally well by Essie Davis, who's trying to raise her son, Samuel, played by Noah Wiseman, uh, after... Their um, her husband, his father, uh, is killed in a car crash on the day the boy is born. He's kind of a slightly troubled child. He's got this sort of slightly junior homicidal MacGyver thing going on where he sort of invents weaponry, including a particularly uh, creative cricket ball catapult backpack contraption. And during the course of trying to stop him from wounding other pupils uh, and, you know, trying to... She works as a a sort of like a hospice nurse uh, and trying to sort of get through the daily grind to raise her son, uh, she finds a book... Uh, in a wardrobe in their house called Mr. Babadook. And she starts reading it to him one night, obviously not realising that it gets a little bit dark, and inadvertently summons uh, the sort of the, the, the character, which is uh, Mr. Babadook. The book is actually really well done. It's kind of a really sort of nastily put-together uh, pop-up book with quite horrendous uh, horrendous imagery in it. And it writes itself as the film goes on, which is also a nice uh, a nice device. But it's very psychological from that point on. There's a, there's a very unsettling Freudian vibe I think going through this whole film where there's a sort of weird pseudo repressed sexual relationship between the mother and the son where like, he comes in on her she's she's masturbating in bed during one scene and the boy comes in and gets into bed with her and it's all really really awkward because the whole thing is sort of allegorical for her dealing with loneliness and you know it's a meditation on sort of the grief and the loss of your partner and loss of a parent and it, there's lots of that and then there's a little demon monster in it called the Babadook it's very, very effective. It's very, very claustrophobic. Uh, they do an awful lot with very little budget. I mean, our, our Kim Newman reviewed this. He gave it five stars and said it's a new horror classic. I probably wasn't as up on it as he was, but it is. I mean, it is a very, very good film. Very well, uh, very well executed. It's quite interesting because the Babadook itself is quite a sort of an iconic-looking creature. It's kind of wears a, a coat. It has a top hat and very long, sharp fingers. Um, which is kind of a mirror of the boy who um, has an obsession with magicians so often wears a top hat and a cape and stuff. There's lots of layers and references within it. I didn't find it perhaps as scary as it could have been. I think the use of sound in it is excellent. So the Babadook, the name of the creature, is a, is a reference to the noise it makes, which is a kind of shuffling baba and then duk, duk, duk as it knocks on the on the walls. Mm. 
Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's a curiosity, definitely worth seeing. Your mileage may vary in terms of how afraid you are of it, but definitely, definitely check it out. If only for um, I mean, the performance, as I say, uh, by the uh, by the mother is is absolutely phenomenal. So. Fantastic. Uh, we gave The Babadook five stars. All right, so those are the two films we're going to discuss in detail this week. Also out this week is the Sean Levy... <laughs> you okay? You all right? Uh, is the Sean Levy ensemble comedy drama, This Is Where I Leave You, which stars Jason Bateman, Tina Fey, Jane Fonda, Adam Driver, who else is in it? Rose Burns in it. Everyone's in it. Corey Stoll's in it this time, you know, with his natural head, rather than the silly wig from the strain. Uh, three stars we gave that one. Serena... Teams Bradley, re-teams Bradley Cooper and uh, Jennifer Lawrence to Disappointing Effect as two stars. The Book of Life, the Guillermo del Toro produced uh, Mexican animation is also three stars. Uh, is a lot of fun to do go and check that one out. Uh, three stars is a recommendation. And Sam Claflin and Lily Collins uh, kind of bicker and banter over a course of a, a decade in the Will They, Won't They, Will They, Won't They uh, rom-com Love Rosie which we also gave three to but the film of the week is without a question without a shadow of a doubt The Babadook uh, so do go and check it out if you want and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by Daniel Radcliffe the star of Horns and some film about a boy wizard apparently which didn't really catch on over here but we hear is big in Eastern Europe until then it is goodbye from James goodbye it's goodbye from Phil goodbye it's goodbye from Ali goodbye and it's goodbye for me. I'm off to send Phil on a how to pronounce Aaron Sorkin's name course. You're up for that? Uh, see you next week. Thanks. Bye.